Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about theology, uh, church, and the well, the life of the church in the world. Um, so, once again, I'm joined by uh, Matt Anderson and Alistair Roberts this week, and we're going to be discussing an article that uh, you know caused a bit of a stir uh, in the Atlantic. It was a feature by Ezekiel J. Emanuel. He's the I think he's he's the head of the um, bioethics. Um, department, well, let me scroll, scroll that up, Clinical Bioethics Department at the U.S. National Institutes of Health and heads the Department of Medical Ethics at U- UPenn. But it was an article in The Atlantic where he says, basically, I want to die at 75, right? Um, and he doesn't say, I want to, I don't want to, he doesn't say that he, he wants to uh, be euthanized or anything like that. But his plan is that at 75, he's going to stop taking care of himself in the sense that if, if he's sick, he's not going to go to the doctor. If there's preventative care that he's supposed to be doing or that doctors will recommend, he's not going to do it. And, and if he got to catch a pneumonia, well, you know, he'll go out with pneumonia. His, his idea is that after 75, roughly at that point, you've had a complete life. You've contri- odds are you've contributed to society what you're going to contribute. But at that point, your, your, your life expectancy is so, um, the, the the quality of your life so begins to deteriorate and create such a strain on um, human relationships, on family relationships, and and just you know, th- there's a whole host of factors going in there. And he says at that point, um, it's not worth, at least to him, continuing to try and prolong life uh, through extraordinary measures or or even kind of for him, normal medical measures. And so uh, today we just want to bring that question up because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective and it might seem initially horrifying, but we just wanted to see uh, what, what, uh, what the guys think, especially in light of uh, our doctrine of creation and redemption. So uh, Matt, Alistair, uh, you guys want to, you guys want to lead in? Yeah, I'll I'll go first. That's all right, Alistair. Um, I uh, I so I'm really intrigued by this article. I have to say that there's a lot in here that I don't agree with, um, but I think it's interesting to start from really his his sort of underlying uh, point or his end goal, which I take to be something like we ought not seek to preserve our lives as long as possible. Framing it as why I hope to die at 75 is a very provocative way of framing it. Um, It's a great headline. It's exactly the sort of thing that people are going to click on. And it's, it's, it's a sharp thesis that I, I don't actually think is right. It's not clear to me that we should hope to die at a certain age or, um, and certainly that we should put a kind of arbitrary number on it, which I think he grants at one point. But this question of should we seek to preserve our lives at all costs is one that I think we need to uh, reflect seriously about. And one of the things that's not clear to me is what counts as extraordinary means of extending our lives and what counts as just ordinary means. Um, So Derek, you you said he's he's not willing even to seek sort of normal health care at a certain point. And that's right. He does give that that impression off. But 
structurally, like looking at our culture and looking at the culture of medical care that we have, what counts as normal, what counts as extraordinary when it comes to uh, end-of-life care seems to be determined by an atmosphere where we seek to preserve life as long as possible, right? Is it the case that um, heart transplants for 73-year-olds, if such a thing is done, is normal or extraordinary care? Um well, if, if the point of our culture is to extend human life as long as it possibly can be extended, then that's going to take on a, a, a quality of normal. We're just going to do that for everyone. But it's not clear to me that um, that should be, in fact, normal or whether that should be, in fact, considered a kind of extraordinary measure to, um, to take care of human life. So I, you know, that's one of the many questions that I have in light of this article. Um, I don't know. It's it's a fascinating piece, and I'd love to hear uh, your guys' take on it as well. If I remember correctly, um, doctors are considerably less likely when it comes to their own choice of um, life-preserving operations and procedures. They're considerably less likely to opt for them than their patients which I think is interesting. Um, one of the issues that is central to this whole discussion is the question of what is a good death. And I think as Christians, we have a particular way of answering that, that we need to work out. The question, as it would be framed by someone else within our society, would tend to focus upon dying speedily without pain, and um, dying when you have your full wits about you, that sort of thing. Um, as Christians, what do you think that we should bring to this question that's distinct? What does it mean to die well? Okay, so Alistair, I think you framed the question really well. Um, what I disagree with in the piece is his particular control of a good life as being independent as being creative, as, you know, he's got these qualities that he lists about human life. And he says, you know, when you get old, um, these qualities diminish. You don't remember things as well. Um, as you get old, other people will remember you as being frail and needy, and they're not going to remember you in, you know, the prime of your youth and so on. And I think um, all of those are deeply disturbing to me as a depiction of a good life, um, in part because I think they um, raise questions about um, whether or not infants and disabled individuals of various sorts uh, can have good lives in the way that he describes them. And so his piece, the underlying reasons that he gives for it seem like they're actually part of the um, the cultural problem that we have in thinking about life and death. Um, and so one of the things that I think the Christian brings to the table is an affirmation of dependency, an affirmation of the, the value of human life, even when our creativity wanes, and a willingness to be remembered as being frail and needy by others, um, because, uh, yeah, because the, the, the value of human life is rooted in sort of 
qualities or rooted in aspects of our existence that are deeper than those qualities. Yeah, the, the, that's the hypothesis, at least. Yeah, I, I was pulled in a number of directions because it, it was it was a really interesting article. At one time, I could think, well, there's a very Christian, there's a very Christian sense of 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 peace about trusting in providence and trusting. You know, I I I don't have to grasp, I don't have to strive to uh, cling to an artificial immortality as a Christian, uh, hanging on. You know, no matter what the cost, no matter what the expense in time and care and um, so forth, because I've got resurrection on the other side. This thing doesn't have to terrify me, whereas so much of our um, end of life care seems to be, um, you know, this American dry, like he says, these American immortals. Um, and so there was a sense where I thought, there, there's a very you you could you could have a very Christian spin on this and in it and just recognizing limits, recognizing mortality and 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 making an easy peace in a sense, um, trusting that you know what I, I've done, I've spoken, I've testified and so forth. Um, the flip side is though exactly what you said that the question though the emphasis that he places on yeah creativity, independence, what counts as a full life. Um, I, I work at a church where there's, there's a significant amount of elderly, um, and we hear in the meetings, the care meetings about, you know, people, you know, breaking hips and, and having heart replacement surgeries and things like that, really intense, you know, things. And, um, there are times when I think, well, you know, uh, we, we, we read deaths every, every service, every two service, so-and-so's, uh, mother, so-and-so's father, so-and-so who's been a member of the congregation for 30, 40 years. And it's sobering. And, and there's times when I think that that is, that is, that is a trial to walk through. And there's times when I not thinking of anybody in our congregation, when I think, you know, there's something about letting go, but then, then the flip side is I look at a lot of these saints who are still kicking, who maybe aren't in their, you know, in the spring of life, who, who maybe aren't as quick as they were at 60 uh, mentally or certainly not independent but the spiritual value that they have about them and yes the mentoring yes the the um just the vital faith in god the testimony to god's faithfulness over the years um and, and i think that's actually one thing that I'm, as i'm thinking about it right now you know living past a certain age and carrying on that witness to God's faithfulness is that's that's something that you can do at any age, uh, and in fact, that's something that the the elderly can do particularly well, even as they don't have some of that vitality, even as they don't have uh, some of that independence and that that illusion of self sufficiency about them. Well, a lot of these older saints, but just you know, they're falling apart physically. Um, but at the same time, they have a faith in God's care and God's provision that puts younger, you know, allegedly more contributing and vibrant uh, men and women to shame. And and I don't know. There's, yeah, I'm rambling, but I, I just I just see that, and I think, you no, know, Christians do have a different view of what constitutes the good life, a different view of what constitutes. Um, a se seasons that are valuable uh 
and they're just valuable for for differing reasons and so that's one angle there's a lot more but um but yeah what you're saying so, i think so I, what you're saying yeah, there go is, for it, Alistair. what you're saying there is very important because as christians it's not just that we value life as christians from the very beginning of the christian church there has been a particular value put put on the gift of a good get of a good death and the witness born in that the fact that in our suffering in our illness in our in martyrdom whatever it is christians die in a particular way and we give those deaths to our to other christians we give those deaths as witness to society and if we are clinging on to life and not willing to give it up under any conditions are we able to give those deaths in the same way as we're called to i was thinking about this quite i've been thinking about this quite a lot over the last few weeks because recently my dad has been diagnosed with parkinson's disease and it's given us all a greater sense of his mortality and also he was preaching on he announcing the fact to the church and that they needed to find a replacement for him as a pastor and just his speaking about his commitment to give a witness through this illness which he doesn't know how long it will last how long he will stay on but there's a sense that this will be the way he goes quite likely he will deteriorate and he's going to bear witness in this to god's faithfulness to um his dependence upon god and that is an, a tremendously valuable thing it's been an encouragement to me just thinking about the witness that he's borne through that and how in many ways you're seeing the harvest of a character over many years being shown and brought to the surface through the way that we deal with chronic illness and with death and if we only see value in good health and activity and creativity and all these sorts of things i think we're losing something that's absolutely central to the witness of other christians that that's ironic in that you said that the value of good health and the value of all that that there's an there's a weird sense in which um what i see is emmanuel's approach his his approach in some ways is more realistic than the american immortals that he talks about who have this illusion that with greater time, there will be greater advances and we'll live these full, according to our current definitions, full lives into our 80s and 90s. When in fact, you know, no, that there's a there's a steep decrease in, you know, the, 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 the quality of life according to these standards. But what's interesting is that he basically accepts, in a lot of ways, accepts the same premises and then comes to a different conclusion. So he he shares he shares the premises with the American immortals and then shifts and then just comes to a different conclusion. In some ways, it makes more sense. But the question that you guys keep raising is, well, yeah, but are, are those our premises? Are those premises we as Christians should be sharing? Yeah, that's right, Derek. That's exactly right. It's a diseased branch off the same diseased tree. Um, it looks different. It might um, have a different flower at the end of it, but but the the tree itself is rotten, and he stays entirely within the framework, which is why you know the things that he advocates for creativity and so on and so forth are all the things that the American immortal loves and wants. Um, which is why you know you mentioned mentorship, and he he does as well, and then breezes right past it and says, "Yeah, that's all important," but. 
um, what's really significant about old age is the narrowing of the um, frame, the narrowing of the canvas. We, we don't have as much ambition as we once did. And I think, well, you know, ambition takes a lot of different forms. I, I received actually an email from um, a wise, a very wise um, Christian from England not long ago who talked about, you know, that he's entering uh, his later 60s and he's looking now to the end of his life. And um, he described very clearly, said, you know, the next move that I make in terms of my legacy is going to be a turn towards mentorship, a turn towards investing in younger people as a way of passing on um, all that I've done and learned. And, you know, for, for uh, Emmanuel in this article, that's a sort of narrowing of the canvas, a, a d- diminishing of ambition. And I, I read that kind of thing as um, such a noble way of ending one's life, a, uh, you know, a kind of sacrificial attempt to bestow on others, to bestow one's own life and the lesson one has learned on those who have not yet gone through it. And I think that's, yeah. So it's very, very peculiar to, to me to that he blew right past it. And I think it is symptomatic of the kind of problem throughout this article. But I guess I don't know um, if, if, we, if we reject the rotten tree of the American immortal and if we frame things differently, um, do we come around to the same kind of conclusions that he does ethically and say things like, maybe we should not pursue all the kinds of medical treatments when we are older that we would otherwise. Um, Is that the kind of upshot of a Christian view of dying well um, that, that we're willing to embrace? And we just have to own that the three of us are young. We're all under 40. Some of us are getting there faster than others. Um, uh, or approaching it, at least uh, you understand what I mean in that. But is 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 embracing um, some of the conclusions permissible within a more thoroughly Christian account of life and death? I I think you know I'm, I'm not. I I'm, think so. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say something really quick and dumb, and then Alistair have you clean it up. Um, I think that there's there's a I don't know. Just given some of our reflections in the. Um, begotten begotten or made uh conversation i think that there is a place for and again yeah i haven't even hit 30 uh and i don't know how i'm gonna feel 50 years from now um but i do think that there's a place for saying you know if if somebody in that bracket says you know just because something can be done doesn't necessarily mean it ought to be done uh and and they they say you know what i i I'll, I'll give these things to God's hands, you know. Um, it's I don't know. I I don't know that I would really fault someone initially. That uh, there 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 could be just a, an embrace of yeah, it sounds all Calvinisty, but yeah, an embrace of providence at that point, or or an embrace of um, hope of resurrection, such that 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 there isn't this pressure to to necessarily. Uh, do something extraordinary like a heart pl- transplant, which at this point is, you know, in a sense, staving off 
the inevitable or, or, or whatever. So I don't know. That's Alistair, say something smarter. Um. I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of our medical decisions are driven by the fear of death and also our inability to actually we don't see death much in our society. Death tends to happen behind closed hospital doors. Most of us don't encounter death much in our in our lives. It's not something that's visible. Um one thing actually I want to, just going back in the conversation I wanted to pick up that um Matt raised in passing and I think needs to be flagged up perhaps talking about mentorship have we created a society in the west where we are all expected almost to be contemporaries we're all expected to behave more or less like the young to have active creative lives and we've lost the ability to be distemporaries to experience differences between the generations and when we've lost that ability, the elderly, the people who lack the ability to live the young sort of life, get cut off and pushed to the margins of society and left in um, loneliness and often detached from the life of um, communities. In churches, it's not so bad because you do have this greater interaction between generations. But have we lost that ability, do you think? And do you think that's part of the problem, that we've defined life in a way that does not allow for any sort of movement through um, different generations to become someone who's who's a distemporary to others within society? Yeah, I think, I mean, Alistair, that, that is, as usual, a very astute point. It, um, it there, the, the, one of the things that we don't like about age, if we're young, is the possibility that um, they are right about the world and we are wrong. And that they can be right simply because they've seen more than we have, right? There's a necessary humility um, that is required for, for young people to recognize that age has something to give to us. But we also have to qualify this because, you know, the experience um, of the world is not the same as the wisdom that comes from that experience. And um, while we live in a culture where um, we don't value, I think, the gifts of, of um, that, that come with age, uh, we also, I think live in a world where a lot of elderly people have much experience and very little wisdom. Um, and I don't know how to navigate that. Um, but it, it does seem to me, and, and, and partly I think they have very little wisdom in part because they, um, have embraced the American immortality. I mean, I, I think about Psalm 90 in this context. Um, it's, Probably the, you know, psalm that I have read more the last decade of my life than any others. Uh, teach me to number my days. Yeah. Um, teach me to number my days that I may present unto thee a heart of wisdom. Right. Teach me, O Lord, sort of how long that I might live in order that I might be wise. And there's a there's a kind of correlation between reflecting on one's own death, preparing for it, 
welcoming it into one's own present experience that is itself necessary to be a wise person. Which is why if you haven't done that, you know, if you've lived in American culture where we're averse to that, and maybe the British culture as well, but I won't speak for them, then though you be old, you may not be wise. And when you reach that age, um, you won't have the, the kind of depths of wisdom to be able to navigate that stage of life properly. Uh, and it's just the kind of cyclical problem. Uh, that I don't, I don't really have a solution two, for. Two notes on that. I find it surprising well, that this Christian uh, talk so little. Oh, I, I was just getting two quick on. notes. One, as a substitute teacher, oftentimes when I had my students do quiet reading time per the teacher's instructions, I would say, you have two options. You can either sit there and read your book, or you can stare blankly at the pages and contemplate your impending death. And this was <laughs> to my high schoolers. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, wait, you did this as a substitute yeah, teacher? I just I was I was Mr. R, and I yeah I said things like that. So um, because kids, kids <laughs> at high schoolers don't think they're gonna die, and and they really need to acknowledge that fact. So that was my philosophy. Um, but then also on your comment though, that I, I see this all the time. The 40, 50, 60 year olds that I see here in Orange County, who I know are trying to still be 30-year-olds or even 40-year-olds, whatever. And and because of that, they demonstrate the maturity of people even younger because they will not grapple with the fact that they are their age and that they've lived these years. And so they're, they're, they're pursuing the folly of youth. And so they don't actually attain youth. It's, it's like that woman who's or man who's trying to wear clothes it's far too young for them and they look kind of ridiculous but but they they feel like they're pulling it off and it, there's an element of wow you're you don't even have like wisdom going for you you just have all the bad parts of of like the clothes don't fit like they're supposed to and you're not wise enough to see that so you lose twice um and that's that's sad i'd rather just i i I'd, I'd rather just be old and I mean, I already can't move that well, so I might as well like have the benefit of the years of wisdom, but I don't yet. Um, Maybe you say, you say that you say that, Derek, but um, again, you are yet young and things do. I mean, I can I'm, I've turned 32 in January and I am not old, but I can see that middle middle age. I'm on the cusp of middle age and I can see that it's a different phase of life. And that I will look at the world differently. And that's a, that requires a kind of adjustment that's difficult. And I'm not sure everyone can do it really well. I mean, it's clear people can't handle it. But it's a hard thing to handle. I find it surprising that as Christians we talk so little about death. When, in many respects, Christianity is, as we live in this world, a preparation for dying well. And we tend to, very often like our society move towards our deaths backwards, always looking back towards our youth and trying to strain forward to something that is constantly getting further away from our grasp, rather than looking forward and thinking, what does it mean to face my death in a way that honours God? And to look forward beyond that to the promise of being with Christ and of new heavens, new earth, resurrection, these sorts of things. Why is it that we always tend to look backwards? Um, 
to our youth. Is there because, some way that as yeah. Christians we can recover that sense of a an emphasis upon dying well? When 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 we post this, I suspect that some people will think that this is the most morbid conversation <laughs> that they've heard in a long time. But it's probably because be. I've had as these Christians, conversations with people, subject. and they they accuse me of being morbid, um, and I agree they shouldn't. Um, but it is the kind of thing that, um, yeah, people just don't respond well. It doesn't sell books, and it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't pack out conferences. You know, my my, my fear. My to be favorite, really snide and snarky. My about favorite it. book on this recently, in the, in recent times, not that I've read them all, but um, Andy Wilson's book that came out last year, "Death by Living: uh, Life Was Meant to Be Spent," is actually an excellent meditation on um, a lot of these issues: how to live well, how to spend your life in light of the fact that you will die. You have been given a certain amount of pages. How are you writing them? But then also in light of the fact that these are pages given you providentially by God and that there is resurrection on the other side. Um, and 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 there's you read that book and there's nothing joyless about it. It is abounding with life and love and vitality. And um, I don't know, there's the two phrases that Van Hooser used. So, you know, he in in a in a forthcoming book, he uh Kevin Van Hooser, you know, talks about uh, Heidegger has his famous phrase being toward death and that's kind of uh, really important for forming an authentic self and so on and so forth um but then he says but for the christian really it's not just being towards death our our way of being in the world is being towards resurrection um and that encompasses both the reality of mortality that that is coming that is impending but then also the the christian horizon on that is is one where there's you know a horizon beyond the horizon right there is there is a sun beyond this beyond the sunset and so i uh, a view that comprehends both well is something that uh that we actively need to strive for you need to be able to meditate on both death and resurrection in order to live life uh well and and approach these 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 uh these choices with wisdom uh, and that's that's something that we we don't do. Uh, like you said, we we have this element of we we don't think of death, and so we don't actually ever push through to think of resurrection. And so we just constantly think of the present and live foreshortened or or lives that that lack depth because of that. They're just they're just limited to this this horizon and not even the limits of it. So it's. Um, yeah, it's a recipe for for depthlessness. Um, to to give value to people giving their deaths to others, in that sense, a faithful death as a witness, we need to be a society that is prepared to receive death, to have death as something that exists in our presence, rather than something that we try and push out of our sight and out of our minds. So I think in many respects, this question is pushed back to us as younger people, how are we going to receive the deaths of faithful Christians within our churches, for instance? How many f funerals do we attend that we don't actually have to attend? Um, should we be thinking about attending more funerals than we do to gain from the witness of faithful Christians? Um, I don't know. Those are just 
rough thoughts, but I've 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 gone so far, Alistair, as to advocate um, the return of graveyards to uh, church yards, essentially, um, which in the states used to happen at points um, and no longer happens. Clearly, has happened a lot in England. Um, now it raises all sorts of problems for when church buildings get sold that are empty. But I, I, I advocate for that. And if not that, at least um, the culture of memorials within the church, uh, within our architecture, remembering the faithful uh, and inscribing their names within stone as a kind of limited acknowledge of the, the permanence of their influence on ourselves. Um, so I think there are lots of ways in which, even beyond deciding to go to funerals, our architecture and the culture of the church within the West can recover um, a healthy presence of death in our own midst. Yeah, I was, uh, I was so on that. This I, is why people call me right, morbid. No, but, but, but really, though, my, my <laughs> wife and I went to a, a funeral of a, a family friend of hers. I had met, I had met the, I met the woman briefly, um, but she was, you know, older sister in Christ. And uh, we went to the funeral and hearing the testimonies of this woman's life, she was, she was lost to, um, she was lost to cancer. And, and it was just a profound hour to hour and a half as, as people shared stories of her life and her faith and her marriage. And I, you know, my wife and I were strengthened in our marriage as we listened and reflected on our lives. It was, it really is a thing where, okay, yeah, it's sad. Yeah. But but it was it was enriching and it was deepening and it was it was true. I mean, ultimately, we should be embracing reality and truth. And part of reality and truth of the world is death. And 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 so Christians are not to run from reality, right? In fact, I mean, we're gospel people at core. Theology is man who's recently wrote is it's we're, we're here to minister reality we're here to proclaim it we're here to embrace it we're here to 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 dive into it and, and one of the things is acknowledging the reality of death and the way that shapes and forms us and if you rob yourself if you if you sequester yourself off from the experience of reality in some ways then you can only live in illusion and living in illusion inevitably live leads to a life of um confusion and 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 yeah like i said deathlessness so i i'm i'm very much i don't like going to funerals but but i'm i'm getting to the point where i'm starting to realize you know i i got to i it, we we it is is it is part of i think a christian way in the world uh is to go to memorials it's a very powerful verse there's some very powerful verses in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Um, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I think we will, we will I love uh, in that. Can I get one last thing? And I know we need to wrap it up. That is the end of all men. There is a democratic 
a, a purely democratic emphasis there, like elite, you know, prestige, um, status, etc. All of that stuff, um, the, the the sort of qualities of life that make people stand out, which are fine and good and wonderful. All of that disappears. That is the end of all men. That's a fascinating, that's the bit that I think is just really interesting. Yeah. Um, we can't be truly Democrats in the way that God is unless we recognize that the end of all men is in death. And that on, on that very Chestertonian note by Matt, um, we will wrap it up. Although I will say Ecclesiastes was one of my favorite books in college, which explains why people thought I was the way I was in college. Um, but with that, we will wrap it up. Uh, great conversation, guys. Once again, as always, the show notes, we will link the article uh, at mereorthodoxy.com and any other relevant show notes we think that should be there. If you f if you were uh, encouraged or blessed or angry or whatever it is and you want to comment, go ahead and do so at mereorthodoxy or share the show or rate, review us. All of those links will be there at mereorthodoxy.com. Uh, until the next time, though, uh, be may, may the grace of God be with you. And, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs>